Here at Waterstone, we focus on living and loving like Jesus. In practice, this means that we connect with one another, engage in justice, and serve sacrificially. We are so glad that you're here and invite you to join us in person. If you're able to attend weekend services, we gather on Saturdays at 5.30 and Sundays in person and online at 10. We look forward to connecting with you. I'd like to ask you this morning, um, as your mind multitasks, and communication experts say that's about every 30 to 45 seconds, uh, to remember that we have 20-plus senior hires and staff up in uh, Fraser on a retreat. So would you pray for them this morning, our kids and our leaders? Revival tends to start with the young. And so let's pray for our young and uh, that God in their worship time this morning would be very present to every heart. Well, we continue our journey through early, original, authentic Christianity as it makes an unprecedented sweep through the empire uh, designed and deigned by Jesus in Acts 1-8 when he said, My Holy Spirit will come upon you. And you will be witnesses of me in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Did I say empire? I mean empires. And it continues today because this Christianity, which has the claim to being authentic, is still very present and active and alive today. And uh, it has truly gone to the ends of the earth. And Christianity globally is as strong as it's ever been. Yeah, you, by the way, the more you say amen, the faster the sermon goes. Here we go. Any side, was that you, Robin? Who had no okay. uh, Any Seinfeld fans in the audience? Raise your hand. All right, amen. All right, we are truly an intergenerational church. This is good. Seinfeld was a show about nothing. It was fixated on the minutia of detail of everyday life like soup service and parking spots and close talkers and high frogger scores. And it was a show that was totally indifferent to the big questions of life like religion and marriage and, and a social concern and, re- and religion. And, did I say religion? Uh, no religion in Seinfeld. And the last episode. Viewed, by the way, by 76 million Americans, a third of the American population at the time, watched in the ninth season, the last episode. You might remember you fans, right? They watch an overweight man get carjacked. And instead of jumping in to help, what the four main characters do is make fun of the man's weight. They videotape it, and then they walk away. And the victim is so upset that the police officer comes, he reports them, they end up in jail, they get arrested, they appear before the judge the next day, and the judge sentences the four characters to a year in prison for criminal indifference. And the very last conversation of the show in the jail cell is about a placement of a button on George's shirt which was the very first conversation they had in the very first episode of the show. The point, no growth. In fact, Larry David, the creator and writer of the show, 
he framed every episode as they'd sit down to, to walk it through with this mantra. No hugging, no growth, apathy. That was Seinfeld. I wonder what impact that's had on our culture. I know something that has had an impact on our culture in terms of apathy has been the pandemic. I don't know about you, but uh, there's dust everywhere that we see. And I'm talking about my heart. So to get ready for Lent, because so much of our staff was actually involved in the service, we had our own kind of Lenten gathering on Tuesday last week. And we, we sat down together, we, we read this quote together, we're going to put it on the screen by Esau Macaulay, who teaches New Testament at Wheaton. He said, the glorious thing about all the prayers of Lent is that they presume a loss of zeal. Over time, we get comfortable in our sins. They become a part of who we are, a portion of the spiritual architecture of our lives. They are a limp we get used to walking with. And then we got into groups of two or three, and we asked each other to grade ourselves on a scale of one to five, with five being like all out, passionate for Jesus. Where, where are you? And with my group, I, I said, I'm a three. And then the next question is, well, why that number? What are you limping with? What's your, you know, what are you carrying that's keeping that zeal number so high or low? And I said, for me, since the pandemic, uh, most nights, I'm watching one or two hours of television. That's not a great thing. That's a three because, you know, most days, that's what I'm most looking forward to is one to two hours of television at night. Welcome to Lent. I see it not only individually in my heart, I see it around the corners of the building. More than the corner, I, I see it in our eyes. I, I see it on Sunday morning, Saturday nights, Wednesday nights, when a bunch of us are always gathered and I look into your eyes. And you know what I see oftentimes? Tiredness. Weariness. And I want to kind of go up to some of you some of the time and, and say, you know, right? that you know, life is about these competing priorities, life is about these disordered loves, and life is about this battle with an enemy. The greatest, here it is, the greatest enemy of a flourishing life is not laziness. Do you know what it is? Busyness. It's busyness. I wanna say to you young parents, really, that much? Not only are you making your kids tired, what about you? I I, want to just remind us this morning in a season of Lent and this apathy that the best friend of apathy is busyness. This morning, in this time we're going to share together with God's word, I think we're going to get a vision Paul's vision of a church that I hope and pray because Paul's vision of the church is a vibrant church and an enduring church that seeing his vision for a church will help us be stirred out of our apathy this morning. You tell me whether that's so or not. 
when we get to the end. Last time we left Paul, he was uh, doing this like massive sermon at the Mars Hill in Athens, Greece. And then sometime after that, he went to another city in Greece, uh, Thessalonica. In the New Testament, there's these letters to Thessalonians. And then sometime after that, he wintered in 52 AD. And after the winter, then he started his third missionary journey, which was about a five-year period, most of which was involved with planting two churches. First, he planted a church in Corinth, Greece, and there's two letters in the New Testament to Corinthians, and then he planted a church in Ephesus in modern-day Turkey, which, again, in the New Testament is this letter called Ephesians. He was in Ephesus for three years planting a church, and what began to happen is two things. One, Paul got this and Paul Joslin um, is going to preach more on this next week, but Paul began to get this stirring to go back to Jerusalem, which would put his life in extreme danger. But uh, there's this development in Paul, and at the same time, the gospel was so powerful in the city of Ephesus that people began to come to Jesus, and they stopped worshiping, i.e. buying silver idols. And so the local union, the SSWA, Silversmiths Workers Affiliated, got hacked. And there was a riot, and they pushed back hard against the church. And so much so, Paul had to leave town quickly without a proper goodbye. He continues the third missionary journey through some other visits. He comes back to a harbor to get ready to sail to Jerusalem. The harbor is called Miletus. It was 30 miles from Ephesus. So because he hadn't had a chance to say goodbye, Paul sends word to the elders of the Ephesian church to come to the beach at Miletus. And they have this conversation and that's where we pick up today. And in this conversation, in this uh, elders, now, you, most of the time when this passage is preached, and you run into this passage a lot in seminaries, because it's the only place in Scripture where you have an elder, a bishop, and a pastor actually in the same verse. And you have an elder as an office, the authority is the bishop, and the work is the pastor. It's the job description of a pastor. In Acts 20, 28. It's a beautiful thing. But today I want to broaden it a bit and say if a pastor, the pastors of a church are doing their work, here's what the outcome should be. Here's what a church should look like. So we're talking about three words that I want you to, to take deep inside of you and stew on this week. What makes an enduring and vibrant church that stirs us out of apathy is first a church that's about friendship friendship. Second, what makes a vibrant and enduring church that stirs us out of apathy is a church that's massively concerned about truth. Truth. And thirdly, what makes a vibrant and enduring church that stirs us out of apathy is a church that is longing, pleading for the Holy Spirit to be at work in and among them. So three words, friendship, truth, and Holy Spirit. That's a vibrant church. Shall we get started? All right. No soup for us if we don't get started. There we go. 
In verses 18 and 19, we see this idea of a deep friendship. And uh, the verses uh, are up there. When they arrived, Paul said to them, this is speaking to the elders of the Ephesus church, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. I want to point out two things. One, that you know how I lived is repeated in Paul's message three times. And it doesn't really come out in the English. In the original language, it's very emphatic. In fact, it could be and should be translated this way. You yourselves know how I live. Paul's saying it's unmistakable how I lived among you. I lived so open, second part, that there's tears mentioned three times tears. I live so open among you, all the walls down, I held nothing back from my trials, from the hardships that I faced, from my joy. My life was an open book with you. You know how I lived, and you saw my tears. Let me come to the point of this first movement. Here it is. You are not really part of a church until you are known known until people have seen your heart seen you on your best days and your hardest days let's unpack that for just a moment the idea of knowing i want to talk about tears and i want to talk about ties not ties like ties friendship tears it's interesting in the text that what precedes the idea of tears, Paul says, I was among you with great humility. And the idea is that the great humility that I uh, shared with you was why I had no inhibition from holding my tears in front of you. Humility. Now in the ancient world, the idea of humility was a negative. It's always used negatively in the ancient Greek language because it's perceived as being weak, as lacking courage, as being low and despised. And you never wanted to be called humble in the ancient world. That was a no good. Isn't it interesting how Christianity latched onto the word and used it over 200 times in the New Testament and says, no, this is a virtue. How did that happen? In a word, cross. That Jesus is going to conquer sin, death, and hell by giving himself to a death, dying on a cross, a shameful cross, and winning the world through weakness. That's the power of humility. So Jesus wins through humility, through weakness, which means his glory shines through us, through our what? Humility and brokenness. God is seen most in us in and through our humility and brokenness. G.J. Kesterson once said that our, our, cells, our, our world would become so much better if we could become smaller in it. That's the idea of Christian humility. And so how does that happen? How do we get that kind of humility such that even we'd bring all our walls down and even be willing to cry with someone? I think it goes something like this. 
Everyone in the world needs to be saved and wants to be saved. So if you're a religious person, some of what that means until you find Jesus is that you're just going to do your best to be a good person and your goodness will manipulate God into being good back to you. And hopefully you do enough, right? Goodness. Religious person. Irreligious people also want salvation, whether or not they believe in an eternal life, but they want something to lift their heart. They want something to come in and make you, like, wild thing. You make my heart sing. (laughs) You make everything. There you go. We latch on to things to be groovy heart. Work is a big one in our culture. So here's how it works. You grab onto work. You say, this is going to be my salvation. You have good days and you have hard days. You have good days when you get the promotion, when you are the envy of the office, when everything is going well for you and you get the money and everything that comes with it. Man, you are, boom, up there. And then when you don't get the promotion and something happens like the job review or a co-worker says something and you know nicks the armor and you have a really hard day at work so you're either really really up here or you're really really down there and that's a hard spectrum to be on and when you're on that spectrum you are not likely to open your life up to much of anybody about all that or the other one that gets grabbed onto is romance right and relationships and apocalyptic feelings for for another person and you know you find someone that makes your heart sing and you pour you know all your kind of well-being onto them you really crush them with your needs like give me what I want what I really really want and (laughs) I told Paul Jocelyn I'm two songs ahead of him now and uh, (laughs) when you're getting what you really really want you're up here But when you're not getting what you really, really want, you're up there, down there. And it's a spectrum and like keeps you like really messed up for a while. And how are you going to be able to open your life up to that? So the Christian worldview and the Christian, they step off those spectrums. They say, I'm not all about work. I'm not all about even marriage and you know, I'm not all about that. I'm, I'm about Jesus above all things. And you know what that means? That means I'm getting the love that I want. It means that grace has entered my life. I don't have to perform for God. It means that God loves me now as much as he will love me a billion years from now. And his love sustains me. And his opinion of me is the only one that counts, bottom line. I'm not saying it's easy on the work thing. I'm not saying it's, you know, marriage and relationships are hard, but I'm saying you're not crushed by those when they're hard because you have a deeper love that enables you to take the mass off when those two things are hard and share your guts and your tears with another. Tears is a healthy church. Ties are a healthy church. Friendship. Look at these verses where this ends on the beach in Miletus, verses 36 to 38 in Acts 20. When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed, and they all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. And they, what grieved them most was a statement that they would never see his face again, because Paul really thought he would see the end in Jerusalem. Then they accompanied him to the ship. This, this, is, a, this is not ritual here. This is not just a see ya. Have a good voyage. 
This is like a gripping, poignant, gut-wrenching goodbye. Why? Because they were friends. They were friends. They had a bond that breaking it was hard. I want to talk for a minute about friendship because friendship is the core of any church. I'm telling you what will keep you here at Waterstone or any church is not the awesome preaching. <laughs> for, was that you, Luann? Who's back? Everyone's pointing back. For those of you online, never mind. All right. Where was I? <laughs> good preaching. Or, you know what, the good worship won't keep you here. Do you know what will keep you here or in any church? It's friendship. Friendship. How do you make friends? Well, I think sometimes in our culture we get this mistaken notion that friendship is, starts face-to-face. And so you, you, know, you find someone that like has potential and you go to Starbucks, sit down, or Atlas Coffee, and uh, you say, please be my friend. Please. Please would you be my friend. And if you're on the other side of that table, what are you going to do? You're going to get out of this place. You know, that's... Who, I don't want to be, you are a very needy person. I don't want to be friends with you. <laughs> if you're, please be my friend. Friendships do not typically start face to face. No one says this better in the 20th century than C.S. Lewis. And this is one of my favorite quotes because you get to see his sense of humor, the British punch behind it. This is why those pathetic people <laughs> who simply want friends can never make any. The very condition of having friends is that we should want something else besides friends. Where the truthful answer to the question, do you see the same truth, would be, I see nothing and I don't care about the truth. I only want a friend. (laughs) No friendship can arise. There would be nothing for the friendship to be about and friendship must be about something. Even if it were only an enthusiasm for dominoes or white mice. (laughs) those who have nothing can share nothing those who are going nowhere can have no fellow travelers preach friendship is not face to face friendship is shoulder to shoulder friendship is kneeling on the beach together because you found the awesome God friendship is rolling up your sleeves together because you found the mission of a lifetime Friendship is the bond that comes from saying Jesus is Lord and we are on mission. Friendship comes from shoulder to shoulder towards purpose. That's friendship. So uh, last week we, uh, we got word that one of our partner ministries, Giving Heart, down in uh, South Broadway, uh, homeless people from Denver catch the light rail and buses, and they end up in South Broadway near Littleton Boulevard to a great ministry that was actually started by Donna and Kirk Zimmerman. Uh, they took it over. They went through our Justice in Action class and got wrecked, and there they are. And they run this ministry, and homeless people come by the scores every week for a good meal, for a shower, and for job skills training, and for worship. 
and they, uh, Giving Heart just got approved to expand their facility and uh, add in showers in their own facility. They used to have a truck pull up to do it. And so the word went out through Josh Bragg and our men's ministry. Josh sent the word out. Five guys from Waterstone dug two feet, well, drilled up the cement and dug with pickaxe two feet trench. Yeah, thanks, Charlie. Yeah, there they are. So I had lunch with Paul Camp, who organized the team and uh, took the picture. I said, man, I'm preaching on friendship this week. What, what's that about after an experience like that? And Paul's answer was, man, when you swing a pickaxe with five guys for uh, six hours, you're brothers when you leave. I'm telling you, you're lonely. Do you want friends? First of all, that is the desire you were created with. Being lonely is not a sin. Do you hear me? God said it's not good for a man or a woman to be alone before the fall, which means he created us to lean. He created us to need friends. And if you feel you don't have enough friends, that's God's goodness in you. But act on it. Act on it. Go to our website. Sign up for one of our ministries. And get shoulder to shoulder with people. And start chasing the mission. And you'll find yourself with a bond and with friends. So the first word of a vibrant, enduring church that helps us stir up against apathy is friendship. The second word is truth. Uh, if you look at the verses of truth, uh, it, it goes on in three pairs throughout the speech. And I'm just going to quickly high point some of it. This uh, idea of preaching and teaching, uh, unhesitating and helpful, and publicly and house to house. Paul talks about this is the commitment of a church to convey the truth. Now, first of all, we need to ask, why is that important? Why is truth important to a church? Well, let me illustrate it this way. Let's say that you want to get to know me, Larry Renault, and you think, well, you know, uh, I, I have certain things I'm gonna, I want to believe about you. And the thing is, you can't just make things up. But uh, anyhow, I, this is what I believe about you. I think you are a tall Danish architect who lives in Denver. <laughs> I would have three responses for you if you think that's who I am. First, nothing wrong with that. We all need tall Danish architects in our life. Second, it's a free country. You can believe what you want and you won't be arrested or fined. Third, you are absolutely wrong. What's wrong with you? A tall Danish architect in Denver? Yet that is how most of our world approaches God. He's a tall Danish architect in Denver. How are they supposed to know about God? What's the evidence? Where are the resources? Where's the truth? The same is true for us, right? As who are we as human beings? Moderns say we are just a physical package. When you're dead, you're done. The Bible says, no, you have a body and a soul, an immaterial part. And that immaterial part lives forever and gets a new body someday. Moderns say, no, we're just a product of forces that never had us in mind. We're a product of our environment, our genetic disposition. 
And the Bible says, no, wait, man, you, are, you have a soul. You are created in the image of God, which means you have this hunger for beauty and for love and for ethics. Where does that come from? They can't both be right. Truth matters. Truth defines lives. And so the church is about this truth. We want the world to know who God is. And we know who God is, right? In a word, Jesus. We are like the manger that's holding the baby Jesus to the world and say, here's God. Here's God. That's the calling of truth. And we preach that truth unhesitatingly and helpfully. Unhesitatingly. Paul, the, the word means to shrink back. Paul says, I did not shrink back in preaching the gospel. The implication is that sometimes when we preach the gospel, we're going to get pushback. You have friends, I have friends, who we've sat down and had coffee, and I hear this. I just can't believe in Christianity because I find parts of it offensive. Anyone heard that? Yeah. What I, wanna, what I do say to them is, darn right. That says that it's not from any one culture. That says that it comes from, from someone who transcends culture. Of course there would be parts of it that would be offensive in every culture. I've never gotten over hearing Tim Keller, who pastored for a long time in Manhattan, he used to use this illustration about cultures and the gospel. He said, let's take two of the favorite teachings of the Bible, forgiveness and sex. And let's talk about those in a Middle Eastern context. Forgiveness in a Middle Eastern context? You are out of your freaking mind. You're nuts. In an honor and shame culture to expect forgiveness? No way. I'm out. But sex in a Middle Eastern culture? Of course you should protect it. It's powerful. It's beautiful. It belongs in a marriage. Yes. No issues. Let's go to Denver. Come to Denver with me. Forgiveness. Yes, it's a beautiful thing. It's ideal. We should strive for that, for relationships and beauty in them. Sex in Denver, as the Bible teaches it? Are you out of your mind? It's within marriage between a man and a woman? What are you, pilgrim? Are you a pilgrim? No way. You see... If you are not offended by the good news of Jesus in all its manifestation, you have not read the whole story. The gospel offends everyone in every culture, and it's what makes it true. And so we preach it unhesitatingly. But Paul says, in a helpful way, I want to just spend a moment on this because, for, uh, honestly, and I think to our shame at times, some churches only get to the first word, and they say, of course we're going to preach the truth, and we don't care who's offended. We're just going to preach the truth. And you get this sense that the truth for them is only about winning and power. We are going to preach the truth, and we are going to win. Paul says there's an extra word you need to add on. You need to preach it. Not holding back, but in a way that is what? Helpful. That word helpful 
comes from the culinary world. It literally means nutrients and stuff you eat to help you grow. Stuff that keeps a body strong. So we preach truth not to win. That's not the goal. Not to be right. That's not the goal. We preach truth to get nutrients into people that help them grow. Are you hearing me? The goal is not to win. The goal is to be helpful with truth. Peter put it this way. We defend our faith in a way that is, some of you know this, gentle and respectful. Because the goal is to have people hear it, wrestle with it, and see them come to Christ and grow in Christ. That's the goal. We don't preach to be right. We preach to help people grow. There's got to be an amen on that. <laughs> publicly and house to house quickly. This is publicly. Paul says it also needs to go house to house. So if this is your only connection to Waterstone, you're only at step one. Keep going. Come get in a group. It's interesting, in this verse that's so famous from this passage, Acts 20, 28, that uh, you know, every seminary pounds into its students, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, be shepherds of God's church, which he bought with his own blood. It's this idea that every church is responsible to shepherd its people. Now in larger churches like Waterstone, it's not just paid staff. It's small group leaders, it's women ministry directors, it's men ministry directors, it's people who take responsibility for other people and be shepherds. Why? This is a tension in our culture. Let me step in it for a minute. We live in the most individualistic culture that has ever seen. Most individualistic culture. But yet, each of us knows down deep that we shouldn't be self-accrediting that sometimes we need accountability, that sometimes we make bad decisions. And in those times, we need accountability and we need someone to help us get back on track. We need to give people hunting licenses into our lives to say, when you see this, when you see that, call me out. That only happens through deep and meaningful conversations in a small group somewhere. So you are not fully connected to a church unless you're known. And the way to be known is to get into a small group we have them going on now. We have Wednesdays at Waterstone. Just let us know. Email us. We get you into a group because that's where growth happens. Find shepherds who you know no scripture and then make membership vows to get involved in people's lives. That's church. Friendship, truth, and lastly, the Holy Spirit. Three times in the passage, it talks about the Holy Spirit is what fuels the church. It fuels Paul's life, and it fuels the church, and even choosing elders. One of the reasons I would encourage you to stay, members, but anyone who's interested, it's open to all, stay after the service and meet our new elder, Beth Campbell. Beth Campbell rocks. You're going to hear her story, her testimony. Some of you know Beth. She's up for being our new elder. The, el the members have to affirm all our elders every year. But Beth is our new elder. Come hear her. But this is God at work. And this is how the church discerns the will of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is at work choosing shepherds for Waterstone. But the Holy Spirit, it's interesting. In verse 32, 
The Holy Spirit's called the, our inheritance, or our, uh, in other places, our deposit. Now I commit you to God, to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sacrificed. And the word uh, alludes to the work of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. And what does the Holy Spirit do in us? This is the book of Acts. He empowers us to be witnesses. He gives us the inner working of the fruit of the Spirit, which make us into another centered person, love. And lastly, he equips the church and every person in the church for ministry. That's how we know the Holy Spirit's at work. Plus a couple of big exclamation points at times called miracles that happen in churches. But day to day, it's the Holy Spirit working. Now, the word also, inheritance, I underlined it for us because it's a very interesting word. It comes from the Old Testament. Do you remember when Israel went into the promised land and all the tribes, save one, got land? Like Reuben got that land and Gad and Asher got that land. All the tribes got a piece of land except one. Somebody tell us who, the one tribe that didn't get any land. Levites. The worship pastors, Maddie and Sarah, no land for you. <laughs> Why? Because they live at the temple. They lead the nation in worship, and so they didn't need land. They lived in the land. But here's what's fun. All the tribes get their land, and then God comes to the Levites and says, no land for you. <laughs> you get me. You get me. Well, in our age, guess who the priests are in this business? You and me. We are priests for each other. We get into each other's lives to help them grow. We are the priests. So let me, with the Holy Spirit, come to you. In this life, I'm not about your physical blessings and blessing you with material. You do know what you get in this life, Waterstone? Every, every person watching, every person, you know what you get? You get me. Jesus. So I'm asking you this morning. Here it is. Is Jesus enough for you? Is Jesus enough for you? Can we be this kind of church where because Jesus is enough for us, we're about friendship and we're about truth and we are longing for the Holy Spirit because of Jesus. So let me close this down. From here, Paul sets his face to Jerusalem. Paul Jason will pick up on that next week. It's very interesting what Luke does now. Who's writing this? He uses the same words he did when he wrote Luke 9 about Jesus setting his face to Jerusalem. And now Paul sets his face to Jerusalem. But what Luke wants to do is not only remind us of the journey, but to contrast them. Because as Paul now goes to Jerusalem, he's got friends all around him. He's never alone. Even in jail, he's got friends bringing him food, bringing him books and robes. He's never alone. Jesus, however, as he goes to Jerusalem, loses friends one by one, two by two, to the very, like, 24 hours before the cross. He's praying in a garden. He, because he's love, he lets all his guard down, and he says, come into my tears. And he says, would you stay with me while I pray? And his three friends can't even stay awake. And the very next day, 
Jesus experiences what no other human being has ever experienced, a cosmic loneliness because the father had to turn his back on his son. Why? Because death is not just physical, death is spiritual. And Jesus needed to experience death for us, even separating from God himself, because that's ultimately what death means. Jesus was separated from the father. Why? So that we would not have to be. Do you hear this? Jesus became lonely so that we could be together with him and with one another. So I'm asking, Waterstone, can we be this kind of church? Anti-Seinfeld, hugging, growth, and overcoming apathy. Can we be this kind of church? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, for the speech of Paul. Thank you for calling us to something today vibrant and enduring. A church built on friendship, a church contending for truth, a church so full of the Holy Spirit is our passion. Lord, that we could pull people out of the apathy of our culture and give our lives a richness, a beauty. Would you come, Lord, even now in this moment? Would you show us where we need to be friends? Would you show us where we need to proclaim? Would you show us where we can invite the Holy Spirit in? If there's anyone here this morning that may be visiting with us or watching online and you want to know how this all works, it begins with a word, Jesus. And it begins with response to his invitation, come to me, all you are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Just say now in the quietness of this moment, Jesus, I come.